So we'll continue our series on righteousness. What is it? How do you get it? I'm going to give you something today you might find a bit surprising because of the way this concept is talked about in modern society. But I'm going to propose to you today that righteousness looks like great leadership. Where what we're going to do is we're going to look at an overview of what we've said so far about what righteousness is and a little bit about our prior lessons. And then we're going to go through righteousness as great leadership from the scriptures. And then I'm going to do something I think you'll find interesting. I'm going to give you some examples from some dominant teams, sports teams in the past. There's a Wall Street Journal article this week that I'm going to pull this from. It says, some years ago I set out to identify the greatest teams in sports history across the world and to see what, if anything, they had in common. In the end, only 16 unambiguously outstanding teams made the cut, and they all had just one shared characteristic. Their long streaks of dominance either began or ended, in many cases overlapped precisely with the tenure of one player. And in each case, this player was or eventually became the captain. So he's going to talk about some of these captains, these team captains, and some illustrations of uh, characteristics that these captains have that I think will fit our theme here. So I hope you'll find that interesting. So first, to review last times, we talked about diakosune, the Greek term diakosune. It's translated righteousness or justice. And in Romans, that's what the book's about. You see the term over 50 times. I think it, with the different forms, it's much more. It, because that's what the book's about. The just or the righteous shall live by faith. And the contest in the book of Romans is between these Jewish authorities who've come to these Gentiles in Rome trying to convince them not to listen to Paul's message, but instead to listen to their message. And Paul's message is righteousness comes by faith because it's imputed to us just because we believe and we're declared righteous in the sight of God. And then righteousness comes in daily life by living by faith, doing what you know is true in your heart, speaking it and then doing it. Believe it, speak it, do it. So that's Paul's formulation. And these competing authorities' formulation is whether you believe or not for the starting place doesn't seem to be an issue. But what is at issue is what you do on a daily basis. And they say you have this standard that's the law. And you have to live up to this standard that's the law. And Paul says, well, you know, we can't do that. It's not the law's fault. It's our heart's fault. So you have to have a heart transformation in order to be righteous. Not do better according to the rules, the standard. Well, definitionally, they're both talking about the same thing because justification, justice, is lining up with a standard. If you left justify a paper, then all the paragraphs start on the left side. They line up. And if you right justify it, they all line up on the right side. And if you center justify it, they all line up in the center line. And the computer will do that for you. You know, it will, it will figure out what the center line is and line it up. And if you change the margins, it will reorient everything according to that line. Well, that's what justice is. The reason why we take people to court and put them in prison is because they've strayed from the norm that's required for society. They haven't lined up on the line. And if they are killing people or robbing people, well, that disrupts the community to the point where it can't function according to its design. So we have to deal with those people because they've strayed from the line. And what they're arguing about is not what the line is. Paul says the law is good. 
it's, it's fine. What the competing authorities and Paul are arguing about is how do you accomplish that? And what Paul says is you fulfill the law when you walk in the Spirit. That's the only way you're going to get there. And if you try to adhere to the law, all you're going to do is justify yourself as you, as you break it with loopholes. Paul says, as you guys are doing, by the way. You competing authorities that are slandering my message. Uh, we also talked about the notion of righteousness, dikasune, in Plato, in the Greek philosophy. They had the same notion. It's things being as they ought to be. And Plato, in his seminal book, The Republic, is asking the question, what is justice? What is dikasune? What is righteousness? And how is it achieved? And the premise of the book is, if we saw righteousness in a city-state, then we would know what it is. So they go through and deduce, what would a perfect city-state look like? And then we'll know what righteousness is. And he concludes, it's every person doing what they do best so the city-state prospers in the, in the greatest way. And interestingly enough, Paul comes up with the same conclusion because when he gets through with his defense of his gospel to the, against these competing Jewish authorities, he gets to chapter 12 and he says, so the thing is to be transformed by the renewing of the mind. What that looks like is a body where every part does what it does best for the benefit of the body. So Plato and, and Paul come up with the same thing in that respect. Where they differ is who the head is. And Paul says the head is only one thing, Jesus. Nobody else gets to be the head. There's no contest about where the head is. And Plato says the head is this select group of people called the guardians. And if you read kind of about that, you'll readily discern that ain't going to work out too good. <laughs> uh, that, so that's dikasune, that's righteousness, lining up with the way things ought to be, lining up with your design. Go to the second point then, uh, what righteousness looks like is great leadership. Great leadership. Now, why would that be the case? Well, let's look at what man was designed to do. What was humanity given the job to do? What was the design? We can look at Genesis 1.28. Then God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, have dominion over it. That's leadership. That's our job as humans, is to lead, to care for. Adam named the animals. He started organizing the place. That's what we do. That's what humans are supposed to do. So if that's what we're supposed to do, then isn't righteousness going to look like us doing that well? And we're supposed to do it in harmony with one another, not with violence, but with harmony with one another. And that's what great leadership brings. Let's turn to Psalm 8, one of my favorite chapters. I've gone over it many times, but you can't go over this one too much. Because this is talking about the subject of the job that man was given to do. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing. We'll just hit the high point. But Psalm 8 verse 3, When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of them, and the son of man that you visited him, visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels... Angel, let me try it again. Angels. <laughs> For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned him with glory and honor. For you've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet. So what this psalmist is saying is, well, I look at this creation, and you look around at this creation, and you say, oh, man, 
this is something else. I mean, look at this. This is amazing. Who would you want to put in charge of something this amazing? The angels who are powerful and majestic, who have been in the presence of God for eons of time? Are these, as verse 2 calls it, babes? These newbies that have just shown up, that are kind of weak and frail and don't really know anything. Which one of those would you put in charge of this amazing creation? Well, you put the newbies in charge. And why would you do that? That's crazy. That's what this psalm is saying. Well, it's, this is amazing. Why have you done this? It's incredible. Well, then we go over to Hebrews 2, which quotes Psalm 8. And Hebrews 2, in verse 10, well, let's start in Hebrews 2, uh, verse 5. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in, in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man? But you're mindful of him. This is Psalm 8. Or the son of man, that you take care of him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. So This is incredible that you've done that. You put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that's not put under him. So God put the whole world under the dominion of humans. And then the greatest understatement perhaps in the whole Bible. But we do not yet see all things put under him. See, is humanity ruling the world with great stewardship and perfect harmony with one another and with God? Is that happening? Do you look around and say, wow, this is a harmonious place. I wonder what, I wonder what fighting and strife would look like. Now, you don't see that, right? But what do we see? Verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. So that's what we see. We see Jesus. Why was he made a little lower than the angels? For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So we see the design. What's the design supposed to be? The design is supposed to be humanity ruling in perfect harmony with one another and with nature as we rule and we care for the creation. That's what's supposed to be happening. It's not happening. So what did our captain do, our team captain? What did he do? Well, he became a person first. He became like the rest of us. And then he came and suffered death on our behalf. And why did he do that? So that he could bring the rest of us with him through the suffering of death so that we could all be captains alongside him and be a winning team. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Is that not great leadership or what? Now, there are three characteristics to great leadership I'm going to propose. Number one is taking responsibility. Just taking responsibility. Number two is serving a mission regardless of the cost. And number three is communicating what needs to be communicated, when it needs to be communicated, and how it needs to be communicated. That's what great leaders do. They do these three things. Now, there's a whole lot of things you can put under these three uh, umbrellas. And we're going to talk about that some. But the first one here is taking responsibility. Whose responsibility was sin? Who took on the responsibility? That's pretty much it, isn't it? Respond, taking responsibility. What does taking responsibility look like? It looks like taking responsibility. Now, 
How many outcomes can we control as humans? Approximately zero. Approximately none. Outcomes are outcomes. God controls the outcomes. What we can control is what needs to be done next. Use act, learn, adjust. You've got a goal and you do something and you learn and then you do something else. And what leaders do is they say, what needs to be done next for the benefit of the mission? We don't stop and say, why is this happening to me? What is wrong with me? We got an example of human nature this morning from Cooper. Wally woke up and said, Cooper, it's Mother's Day. And Cooper said, no, it's my day. That is not taking responsibility. Uh, Let's look at Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass... So, what's happened? Somebody's sinned? Whose responsibility is that? Theirs, right? They They did the trespass. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. So who all am I supposed to take responsibility for? Yeah, whoever's in my sphere. Can I control that person? It doesn't say control them. It says pick up their backpack and put it on. Bear their burdens. Take responsibility. Not control. We can't control outcomes. What we can do is say, what needs to happen next? Restore this person. How do we restore? What action do we need to take that would lead us potentially to restore this person? Can you make the person be restored? You can't make this person be restored. What you can do is invite them to be restored. Invite them to be restored. Bear their burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ, which is what? Treat other people like you want to be treated. Love God, love others. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. So you're not all that special. You're just like the other person. I'm just like the other person. So when they fall, help them up. So that would obviously mean when I fall, it's your responsibility to help me up, right? And so what I should mainly be looking out for is who is not helping me and why not? That's what I should mainly do, right? Well, we'll take care of that now, but let each one examine his own work, and then, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. So there it is, the Bible. Take your own load and carry it. Don't expect anybody else to bear your burdens. And by the way, bear everyone else's burdens. Have a good day. Because righteousness looks like great leadership, and great leadership means taking responsibility. It doesn't mean controlling outcomes. That's not what taking responsibility is. That's the thing we want to do. And who are we focusing on when we do that? I know what needs to happen. Is that true or not true? It's not true. It's not reality. So seeing reality is a big part of great leadership. Examine your own work. See yourself with reality. And when you see yourself with reality, then you can help other people. And by the way, bear your own burdens. So number one. Bear your own burdens. Number two, serve the mission no matter what. We know that Jesus was given a mission. We know that from Philippians 2. Let's just look at Philippians 2 real quick. Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. So now we're, gonna, we're about to hear what was in Jesus' mind. He had a there. He had a mission. What was it? He was in the form of God. So he said, here I am in heaven. I like my life. This is a good life. I'm enjoying my life. 
But he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He didn't, he didn't say, this is not fair, that I have to lose my comfort and go do something hard for an important objective. He did not say that. He did the nasty, dirty work that needed to be done for the mission of restoring the world. What did he do? He took on the form of a bondservant and came in the likeness of a man, a babe, one of these lower-than-the-angels people, us, that are supposed to be doing a job and are failing miserably at it. And he came to say, I'm going to show you the way to restore what should be to bring you back, you're supposed to be left justified and the words are all over the page and we're going to get it lined up again. I'm going to show you the way. I'm going to show you the way. And he came and he showed us the way. And being in, found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even on a cross. So he had a mission and it was to do the will of the Father, which was to come and die for our sins. And he said... I will serve that mission at the cost of my life. It wasn't comfortable for him. He didn't want to do it. In his emotions, he prayed fervently, Father, let this cup pass from me. Is there some other way to do this? And God answered his prayer. No, there's not another way. So he said, okay, then I will do it. Verse 9, therefore... God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. This is not controversial to us. We expect Jesus' name to be above every name. Unless we focus on the word, therefore. Why is Jesus' name above every name? It's not because he was already God. It's not because his name was already above every name as God of the universe. It's because he became a man and became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. So now his name is made above every name as a human. Not just as God, but as a human. As the king of humanity. As the captain of our salvation. Salvation from what? From a world that is not righteous, is not working according to the design, to a world that is righteous and is according to the design. That's the mission. That's what he laid out for us. So have this mind in you. Have a mission. Be on a mission. What is our mission? To follow that captain. We don't see the world operating the way it's supposed to operate right now. It's not happening right now. What is happening? It's broken. So what are we supposed to do about that? The same thing Jesus did. Have that mission. And follow that mission no matter what. Even to the point of death. Be a faithful witness. Do not fear death. That was the theme of Revelation. It's the theme of discipleship. Take up your cross daily and follow me. There's all kinds of death that can happen. There's rejection. I think that women's Bible study is going to study this. What, what do you, how do you handle rejection? Rejection is probably the thing people fear the most, sometimes even more than death. But no matter what that is, this is what we need to learn. And if we learn, then we'll be elevated to captain, along with our captain. He said, to the overcomer, to the nakeo, to the victor, to the champions... I will share my team captain job with you. I will share my throne with you. We take responsibility. We have a mission. And that mission is to be a faithful witness and not fear death and do what Jesus did. Follow in his path. What did he do? He had this mind that I'm going to please God no matter what. I'm going to do what God asked me to do no matter what. And the third thing great leaders do is communicate what needs to be communicated when it needs to be communicated, the way it needs to be communicated. Now, we're all very familiar with 
sharing the gospel. We're encouraged to share the gospel. It's a part of the culture and ethic of the evangelical church, of which we're a part. And appropriately so, because the Bible makes it clear that that's what we're supposed to do. The thing we have mixed up, in my opinion, is the priority of what it is we're supposed to do in sharing the gospel. If you look in the epistles and look for commands to speak the gospel to others, you will find exactly one command to speak the gospel. And it's in 1 Peter 3. And it says, when someone comes and asks you, how can you be happy when the circumstances are this bad? Then tell them the gospel. Because that's explaining to them how you can be happy when circumstances are this bad. That's it. And that's the only time that we're told to speak. But on virtually every page, if not every page, I haven't checked, we're told, let your light shine. Be a city on a hill. With your life, your transformed life, constantly as you live, be an example to others so they can see you and say, that's what righteousness looks like. That's what we're exhorted to do. Now, that's not saying there's not a place for preaching or in teaching. There obviously is. It's a, a very elevated role. But the main admonition to teachers is this. I think about this often. Count the cost before you decide to become a teacher. Because you will be held to a higher standard. Well, thanks a lot. <laughs> so the reward I get is a higher standard. Yay. Uh, unless you say leadership's about taking responsibility. I can do this, so I will. See? Okay, three things that great leaders do. They take responsibility, they have a mission, serve a mission, and they communicate how it needs to be communicated. So let's look at some examples, these dominant teams. The first example is an example of uh, a guy named Bellini. Nobody's ever heard of. He played on the Brazilian soccer team that won two consecutive World Cups and was dominant during this period. And the star on the team was a guy named Pele. Probably everybody's heard of Pele, right? Pele was not the team captain. This Bellini was the team captain. And he never scored a goal. Bellini didn't. He was the center fullback. And he took care of the daily, hourly grunt work that was needed to unify the team. He cleaned up their mistakes with fearless defense, often leaving the pitch, the soccer field, bruised and bloodied, and calmly urged them forward when their confidence sagged. The captains on my list, he says, were rarely exceptional talents. The leader's job was not to dazzle on the field, but to labor in the shadows of the stars to carry water for the team and to lead from the back. So this Bellini understood roles. On a team you have roles. And these roles all have to be played. And it's wonderful that you've got a phenomenal goal scorer like Pele that can bicycle kick and do all these amazing things. But you know, you can lose a game real easy if somebody makes a mistake and you give the other team an easy goal that doesn't require a bicycle kick. And all the things that lead up to Pele getting a chance to score a goal, it, it starts with somebody making a stop and then getting the ball advanced the right way. And Bellini understood that. And he focused not on who's getting the glory as a person. He focused on the team's glory as winning games. So he looked at what needs to be done. And then he took on the responsibility to see that those things were done. And he quietly encouraged the team. He didn't, he didn't speak in a public way that might humiliate somebody. He spoke what needed to be spoken at the time it needed to be spoken. Now, the second example is Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra is known for his communication, but not for eloquence. 
Uh, he had these things called yogiisms. I, I found out there's actually a uh, malapropism is what that's called for, for uh, whatever that means. But, you know, his, some of his most famous ones were uh, be sure to go to other people's funerals or they won't come to yours. Uh, you may have to think about that for a minute. And I think his, uh, one of his best ones was 90% of baseball's mental, the other half's physical. But, you know, he, he was great at this, but that, that wasn't what made him the leader of the team. They didn't have an official captain, but he was understood as being the leader of the team. He was five foot seven, 185 pounds. He's a little guy. And in baseball, it's interesting, in baseball is mostly standing around. The most important thing you do in baseball is be ready to do something, but you hardly ever get to do anything, except for two people on the field. There's two people on the field laboring on every pitch, the pitcher and the catcher. And the pitcher plays every fourth or fifth day. And the catcher plays every pitch every day and is beaten and bloodied and bruised. And back in these days, they didn't give you every third day off or whatever they do in a lot of cases now. And Yogi, he was the guy, he just, he took it. And what he was well known for was constantly encouraging his teammates. He cycled through dozens of pitchers, few of whom posted elite numbers, yet pitchers of all types flourished under his tutelage. He was a 285 hitter, which in baseball is good, really good, above average, but not phenomenal. And he was MVP several times and high, high voters. In the, so people saw that this was happening. He would study his pitchers and he knew them so well, he knew exactly what to tell them and when to tell them, to encourage them. So what Yogi Berra was awesome at really was listening. He was a great observer. And if you're going to be a great communicator as a leader, that starts with being a great listener. You can't know what to say, when to say it, if you don't know the other person and know your teammates. Uh, the next one is Jack Lambert. He was a middle linebacker for the Pittsburgh Steelers. I did not know this. He was undersized and not particularly strong or fast. I thought he was a monster because of the way he played. That's what I remembered from years ago. Not, not the case. But what Lambert was a genius at is using an example to motivate his team. So this is biblical, right? He wasn't so much of a verbal guy. But he led by example, and this is, this is one of the most common traits of all these captains. They led by example. Not so much telling other people what they ought to do, but showing them how to be relentless. After winning consecutive Super Bowls, which is pretty unheard of, the Pittsburgh Steelers had started the season 1-4 and four and faced a must-win game against Cincinnati. On the field that day, Jack Lambert played so relentlessly that the bandages protecting a cut on his hand gave way. And the result was a gory mess. Blood splattered all over his uniform. The team's trainers could have prevented it easily by changing his bandages every time he came off the field. But they never even approached him because they knew he loved having blood on his uniform. Because he was communicating something to his team. He was communicating, this is how we win, by leaving everything on the field, communicating with deeds. Another great communicator of deeds was Bill Russell. Bill Russell was the team captain for the Boston Celtics. The Boston Celtics during this era totally dominated basketball. 11 titles in 13 seasons. And I don't think there's been anything like this ever seen. He was such a leader. They even made him a player coach at one point in time, which that's really hard to believe somebody could do that. Well, 
Russell started this with a play where he was a rookie. They were, they were in this uh, playoff game, and this guy stole the ball at midcourt and started down for a layup. And Russell was near the basket, and he beat the guy to the basket and blocked the shot. Like He ran almost the full court while the other guy was running half court. And that, that's kind of where, he, where his heroics started. But, but that didn't stop his entire career. He was well known for being a relentless player even in meaningless games. Because he was sending a message. If we're going to be a dominant championship team, we can't take a day off. And this is another characteristic of these great captains. They played through horrific injuries, terrible personal situations. Uh, one of my favorites here is a, is a guy I'd really never heard of. His name is Valery Vasilev. Now, I remember the uh, Miracle on Ice. Do you believe in miracles? Al Michaels, you know, the, when the U.S. hockey team beat the Russians. Well, we didn't really look at the other side of that story very much, but Vasilev was the captain of that team on the Russians. And they lived under the Soviet Union at that time. And losing a humiliating public match was not something to take lightly if you're in the Soviet Union. Remember, remember that's the country with the gulags. That's the country where they killed tens of millions, maybe a hundred million of their own citizens because they were getting in the way of the, you know, the great communist state. Well, after the game, the Soviet coach told his players, hey, listen, don't uh, point fingers. So then on the plane, the coaches started ripping the players among themselves. And Veselev heard it. And he went and he grabbed the coach by the neck and threatened to throw him off the plane if he didn't stop it and take it back. If you're a Russian and you do something like that to an authority, you're putting it on the line. I mean, that's, that's I'm willing to go to the gulag to protect my team. Well, he did take it back, and the, this was reviewed by the Kremlin. They decided to overlook it. And Vasilev then became the captain. And you can see that you've got a scared group of, I'm going to go to the gulag, and suddenly they move into a, I got somebody that has my back. And they move from a don't make a mistake culture to a, you know, be great culture. And under his tutelage, they won um, an Olympic title, three straight world championships, and went uh, and won basically 90% of their games. That's the kind of courage it takes to serve a mission in a way that is great. You gotta get after authorities when authorities are wrong. You gotta get in the face of people who can fight back and potentially even ruin your reputation when they're wrong. You gotta take a stand when the stand needs to be taken. When and how. Not for your own sake. That's like the worst thing you can do. But for the sake of the mission. So, there's three things we can control as people. You've heard this before. We can control who we trust. We can control the perspective we choose to have. And we can control our actions. And what great leaders do, and when great leaders do this, they bring righteousness into the world. What great leaders do is they choose a perspective that's real. They choose a perspective that's true. These tools that you've heard a lot about, most of them are get-in-reality tools. They're tools to help us choose a perspective that's true. Even listening is a tool that helps us choose a true perspective because seeing what other people see is giving us a more complete picture. And they see what their team is and who the roles are. They see the body and they understand their role on the body. I'm a defenseman on the team. I'm a catcher on the team. I do the dirty jobs. Maybe that's like being a liver. There's nothing glamorous about a liver. You know what? But if your liver stops functioning, you don't live very long. So I've got my role in the body, and I'm going to do that role relentlessly. 
And why? So all the other role players will be relentless. And then the pretty face or the long eyelashes will get all the attention. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend my time elevating the fingernails and the little toe. I mean, one of the greatest football players of all time had to get out of football because his little toe went haywire. No, toes are important. They don't get much glory. But what uh, Romans 12 tells us is make sure every, all the pieces have glory. So we choose this perspective to say what's real. And part of that perspective choosing is what my purpose in serving this mission. And what is this mission? It's to show righteousness with my life. And to do my role in such a way where I relentlessly demonstrate to other people what this path to take is to the design that we have. The design to be in perfect harmony. Subduing the earth together. And we don't see that right now, right? But we do see Jesus, who for the suffering of death was crowned with glory and honor. So if we will be relentless and courageous in doing our job, whatever that job is, and not fear rejection or death or loss, then we are actually being a great leader. Nobody may notice. Nobody may notice. Some of these people you never heard of, but the team knew because they were watching. So... Our perspective, what we do, taking responsibilities largely, what do I do next? And then who we trust. I mean, the world's either the way it is, the way God said it is, or it's the way we wish it was. And we can live in the we wish it was world and trust ourselves and live in non-reality and all the futility that goes with that. Or we can live in the world as the way God it says. And His Word shows us what's real. And if we trust that, shape our perspective from it, and then bear the responsibility for others and for ourselves, serve the mission of living the kind of life that relentlessly shows others what righteousness looks like, and then communicate with our lives primarily, but also with words when necessary, what righteousness is, as and when appropriate, then we are doing what Jesus invited us to do as our captain, the captain of our faith. God, thank you for this encouragement. You're our captain. Help us follow your example and share that role with you because we're willing to get blood on our uniforms. We're willing to study one another and understand what to say and when to say it. We're willing to challenge authority when that's needed to happen. We're willing to put it on the line and take personal risk for the benefit of the mission. And we're willing to be relentlessly pursuing the um, mission of righteousness even when it doesn't seem to be necessary. Thank you, Lord, for the spirit that you've given us to empower us to both see and to do things that you told us were greater than even what you did when you were on earth. Help us embrace that and, and do it. And help us see past what the world says is glamorous and important and leadership. So none, none of that matters. Help us trust that what you say great leadership truly is and be satisfied with that and build one another up as we do this uh, with each other. In Jesus' name, amen.